All right, well, uh, it, <laughs> uh, I also appreciate that Sarah read our passage today, an easy one today. Let's just read that one and walk away. Um, I suppose um, uh, anytime you read a passage in the Bible, um, and as uh, I've taught a cl- classes at um, Fuller Theological Seminary at Biola University, we talk about interpreting Scripture. There's kind of three worlds, three places where you look when you come to a passage. You, you look at the text itself, the words in the text, how it all uh, works together, the format of the text. But there's also this world behind the text and uh, the world into which that text was written and that that world informs kind of the, the, the intent of the text. We take that world and the text and we put them together and we learn a little bit about that. But there's another way, there's another thing that we do when we come to any passage in the Bible. And that is we not only have to ask about the text itself and the world behind the text, but we also have to ask about the world that is proverbially in front of the text. That is our world, the world of readers. That when we come to a passage, and this is what I teach my students, that every time you come to a passage, there's one question you ask um, as you're doing your study in the passage, and that is this. Does the passage have a reputation? Has it been used in various ways? How has it been interpreted in the history of the church? And we come to a passage today that has a reputation about it, does it not? Yes, it does. It's like, you know, it's like the, how do, we, how do we come to a passage that has a history of interpretation? Um, how, how do, um, I, and I guess what, this, this idea that um, we come, each of us comes with an experience of marriage, whether we are married or whether we have experienced or witnessed a marriage or what husbands and lives are like. And maybe the more difficult thing, look, I can, we can look at the text, we can look at the world behind the text, and I've got books and I've got like lexicons and you can look at my office, we can look at all that stuff. But what's more difficult when we come to a passage like this is that we come together and we all have a different experience lived of what it looks like to see a husband love his wife, or a wife yield to her husband, or even the idea of we've seen that done well, we might have seen it done well, we might not have seen that done well. When we come together, we don't know the experience of the person sitting next to us in terms of seeing a marriage that is characterized by love and mutual respect, or a marriage that is characterized by abuse and neglect. And so when we come to a passage like this, it's, the text is not enough. The world behind the text is not enough. We also have to pay attention to what we have experienced in our world up to this point. Certainly, we're going to talk about the text and the world behind the text, but there's also the sense of this. We are all coming to this passage with things on our minds. And so what I want to do today, I got, I got a few things to say about this passage, and maybe you're excited about it. Maybe you're like, look, Pastor Craig, let's just get out of here. It's Memorial Day weekend. Um, like, <laughs> and there's part of me that's like, hey, okay. But I didn't, I didn't take this job, like I didn't take this job to dodge a passage like this, right? That this is God's Word and we have to make sense of it, especially the more difficult passages, the ones that don't ring as true in our 21st century world how do we deal with a passage like this? And so this, I, this passage has a complex role. Perhaps you've seen it lived out in color in front of you with a husband loving his wife sacrificially and a wife willing to yield to her husband, but perhaps you have seen it misfire right in front of you. And maybe you've seen this passage used as a club to bludgeon women into submission. And our goal today is to give some sense of what the Apostle Paul intended in this passage and also to chart a path forward. What does a marriage look like? What is God's intention for marriage? All right, you guys ready? All right, we're ready. I I don't know if I am, but we are ready, okay? So there's a number of things I want to say this morning. We'll get to them. Something about submission, about headship, about love, and the idea of what marriage is and how we ought to engage and practice in it. All right, so here's the first thing about this passage. First thing is there's a great irony about this passage, and I don't know if it shows up immediately, because if you just read this passage out loud, if you go down to City Hall and you read this passage out loud, right, 
it probably is not going to go super well for you, okay? If you go on a street corner or into a school or into your workplace or wherever and you read this out loud, it might not sound the same way it did 2,000 years ago when it was written. And here's the great irony about this passage. Though it is often heard as being demeaning to women, the Apostle Paul is sometimes categorized as being a misogynist. Paul here is actually intending to raise the status of women in his world. Okay? So, little little roll call on the attitudes towards women in the ancient world. Buckle up because it's horrible. Okay? And I'm not overstating that. Attitudes towards women in the ancient world ranged from bad to awful. Women were seen as having the primary role of bearing legitimate heirs. <laughs> legitimate. If a, child, if a child was not male, if, if a baby was born and it was not male, there was a good a, a chance that the couple would decide to expose that baby because it wasn't going to be a male heir. By exposure, meaning abandon it in the countryside and let the baby die. Just because it was female. Women were often married off at or before puberty. Oftentimes women's sexuality was feared in the ancient world that they were temptresses. And so getting them married as early as possible meant control over them. Women lacked political rights. They were not allowed to attend or speak at public assemblies. This is in the Greco-Roman world as well as the Jewish world. They were not allowed to vote. Even when women eventually, in the second century AD, so by the second century AD, women in Rome particularly gained some public influence, it was often with kind of scandalous allusions to female spite and treachery and manipulation. Women were thought to be easily deceived and incapable of sensible judgments. Their testimony was not trusted in court. One Greek philosopher wrote, and I'm just saying this, okay? One Greek philosopher wrote that women were the, quote, worst plague Zeus had made. Another said, quote, the two best days in a woman's life are when someone marries her and when he carries her dead body to the grave. It's awful. It's horrible. One rabbi advised, well, in Judaism, women were not counted in the quorum needed for a synagogue assembly. They were ritually unclean during menstruation. One rabbi advised, quote, do not talk much with a woman, not even with one's wife. Women worshipped separately from men in the Jewish and the Greco-Roman world, if they were even allowed to worship at all. In many cases, women and men did not even eat together. And then along comes this new messianic movement with Jesus, in which the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. And the followers of Jesus include women. And the early Jesus movement encouraged men and women to worship together. And the central act of that worship was sharing a meal together. And you get a sense of really this, the scandal, the social scandal that is somewhat inherent in the early Jesus movement. And into a world in which attitudes towards women were frankly horrible. And when we think about our world today, the, the, even though there still are glass ceilings and there is still matters of equal pay for equal work, and those are real issues, that th this world is much more friendly to women, particularly in the West. And this is the case even in the ancient world, that the further West you move, the, the better off you were if you were a woman. But anyone who reads the New Testament texts about women without an awareness of this context, will not interpret them properly. 
And though this passage is going to sound harsh to our 21st century ears, there are several clues as to the intent of Paul to raise, to actually raise the status of women. Now, 2,000 years later, it's not going to sound like that. But I want to point out a few things about this. So what I want to do is I want to point out about how is Paul trying to raise the status of women? How does that not mesh with our 21st century ears? And then actually ask the question, what is, we think about what God is doing, what the Apostle Paul is saying about marriage and about husbands and wives. What is he saying? What is the Apostle Paul intending about the nature of a marriage and the nature of a relationship between husbands and wives? So let's look at this first, okay? So here's, the first thing is this. So the Apostle Paul, my thesis is this, that the Apostle Paul is trying to raise the status of women. Here are, um, there's really five clues as to his intent here to raise the status of women. Not all of them are going to sound very good to us today, but in the ancient world, here are some ways that Paul is trying to raise the status of women. Okay, the first thing is this. When you look at Ephesians chapter 5, and you go from 5.22 all the way down to 6.9, what this is called in the ancient world is it's called a household code. It's called a household code, and it addresses the relationships within a household, husbands, wives, children, parents, and slaves and masters, okay? That this whole section is, a, is what we call a household code, and we can read them from other non-Christian or non-Jewish writers in the ancient world. And so this is actually something we can compare against kind of this cultural sensibilities of the day and ask the question, how is Paul following that? How is he not following that? And what we're going to see is that in many ways he is swimming against the tide of the traditional cultural household codes of his day. And the first way he does this the first difference in this household code is that um, in, in the ancient world, if you, had a, if you were doing a household code, what you would do is you would give the, the right of first address. The person that you address first is the higher, is perceived as the higher, the more authoritative, the more, uh, the, the, the more, the more powerful, the more, uh, the more worthy of being addressed first. And in typical household codes, you would have Husbands, fathers, masters, they would be addressed first. The Apostle Paul and every other code, there's one in Colossians, there's one in 1 Peter, whenever they occur in the New Testament, who is addressed first? It's not husbands, fathers, and masters. Paul flips it and he addresses the first way, he addresses those who are perceived as lesser according to the culture, they are addressed first. Look at 522. Wives, submit to your own husbands. 6.1, children, well then husbands come in 5.25. Husbands, love your wife. 6.1, children, obey your parents. Parents don't come until 6.4. Slaves, obey your masters in 6.5, and then masters in 6.9. Addressing wives, children, and slaves first was a departure from the cultural form and was intended to raise the status of the groups perceived by the culture to be lesser, quote-unquote lesser. They were, they were being given the honor of first address. Even if that's lost on us today, it even sounds harsh today because it almost sounds like he goes right for the jugular, right, first. Sometimes when you when you hear when you're addressed first, you feel like I'm being singled out. I'm being but and that's part of our cultural norm about address and rhetoric and things of that nature. But in the ancient world, the honor of first address, Paul flips it on its head. It's lost to us if we don't understand the world in which this is being written in. But that is the first thing. The intent two thousand years ago was to swim against the tide and to raise the status. Of women. That's the first way, the first clue we have that Paul is actually trying to raise the status of women. The second way this departs from the ancient world um, and the model of a household is in 521. Look at 521. This, this passage, so we just came off this passage. Well, last week we, we heard about the status of the harvest. Adam Day gave a great message about um, the role of, of global partners and missions. But before that, we were looking at this passage in Ephesians about, um, about being filled with the Spirit. And there are all these, uh, how are you filled with the Spirit? And there's, there's this command, be filled with the Spirit. But then there are these participles that, uh, that as you look at it back in 5, 
in 515, be careful how you walk. He says, don't be drunk with wine, be be filled with the Spirit, verse 19. So there's addressing one another in Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the heart, with your heart, giving thanks. And then the last one of those about being filled with the Spirit is submitting. And this is the second way that Paul is going to divert. That usually the idea of submission, this idea of coming underneath someone else or something else, is addressed only to those who are perceived as lesser. But for Paul, he says, he doesn't say, uh, he doesn't just start out by saying, wives, submit to your husband. He starts out by saying what? Submit to one another. Submit to one another. Which is, which is nonsense in the Greco-Roman world. No, 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 no. You submit to the greater. You submit to the greater. You don't don't mutually submit to each other. That doesn't make any sense. But Paul, again, mixes that. It's like he takes the whole bag and he he shakes it all up. It's even the the idea of like our church is the DMV. It's like, look, there's no one in here that can claim a greater status with God, more authoritative before God, that God kind of takes the whole thing and he just kind of shakes it up and he says, all right, now submit to one another. And so Paul is doing that. That's the second way that we see that he's raising the status of those who are perceived as lesser. We in our church, we have this this value, the overwhelming value of each person. That we want this in our bones. We want to see whenever whoever we look at, whoever we see on the road, whether it's 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 a policeman, whether it's a barista, whether it's a homeless person on the side of the road, whether it's the person sitting next to you. When we look at them, we see there's an overwhelming value to that person. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, all are one in Christ. And Paul is saying he's doing that very thing here by saying, look, when you come together in your household, you find a way not just to submit lesser to greater, you submit to one another. And so the second thing we have is that Paul is addressing this idea of mutual submission, mutual submission between all in the body of Christ. Let me just say something about submission and then... um, because it's going to come into play, and you might have questions about it. It's not a very easy word to hear in our 21st century world. Uh, submission, uh, submitting, the, the verb in, uh, in Greek is hupotasso, and it's the idea, it's uh, two parts, hupo and tasso. It's coming underneath, coming underneath of something. Um, in, the, in the lexicon, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, Gingrich, lexicon, BDAG, for those who know, if you know, you know. There you go. Okay, there, thank you very much. It's defined, the definition is this idea of to voluntarily yield in love. To voluntarily yield in love. And so when Paul says in 521, submitting to one another, what he says is voluntarily yielding to one another in love. Voluntarily yielding to one another in love. We're going to be talking about this and we'll come back to it, okay? But I wanted to keep that in mind. It's this idea of voluntarily yielding in love. All right, so the first two ways Paul addresses uh, wives first, raising their status, the honor of first address, and then he doesn't talk about just lesser, uh, lesser submitting or who are perceived as lesser submitting to the greater, he says submit to one another. A third way that Paul is intending to raise the status of women is that he encourages wives to submit not to every man, but only to their own husbands. 522, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. You might think that seems like a, a strange detail to bring up, but there's, you could say this in a lot of different ways. You could have just said, wives submit to husbands, submit to your husbands, but he actually uses a different adjective, not only just to your husbands, but to your own husbands. In the ancient world, there was this idea, of the difference between what we would call a more complementarian and a hierarchicalist idea. Hierarchicalist um, thinking is this idea that you have um, that you have this idea of, of God, you've got men, women, and then it just got kind of this hierarchy. And in a hierarchicalist approach, you have this idea, that in the ancient world, the idea was that all men were over all women. 
And that if this were written into that world, it would imply, if, if, that, if it was in the, 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 the stream of that consciousness, it would be that all women submit to all men. But Paul says, no, 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 no. What I want you to do is I don't want you to, you don't have to submit to every, uh, every other person, simply to your own husband, your own husband. And again, this, it might sound hollow, 21st century ears, like we hear this, we're like, I, I thought you were trying to say good, good news out here, Pastor Craig. Um, but in the ancient world, if you were to hear this, you would be like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Why are you only saying that women should only submit to their husbands? Shouldn't they submit to all the men? And Paul's like, no. They have value beyond that. Not every man has their best interests in mind, but their husband is going to sacrifice himself for them. Not every man will do that for every woman, and so she shouldn't submit to every man. So this idea of even your own husband's is a way that Paul is intending, again, whether or not you think it sounds like that, it is the intent here. All right. So that's the third way. Um, all right, even as, he, as it says, as wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, the, even that as to the Lord is not this idea that submit to your husbands as if he were God. That's not the idea. It's submit to your husbands as part of your devotion to the Lord. Same way as like everything you do, do as unto the Lord. Whatever you put your work, your hands to work, do it as unto the Lord. So in this idea that even the submission part, the yielding part is done as unto the Lord, not in the same manner as one would submit to the Lord, but as part of your devotion to the Lord. Again, you're like, I thought you were trying to say something nice here, Pastor Craig, but it doesn't sound nice. I'm just saying how this would have sounded in the ancient world, okay? All right, the, other, the final way that Paul is going to, uh, I said five, there's four here. Uh, the final way that Paul is going against the tide of his Greco-Roman and Jewish society, raising the status of women, is that rather than focusing on the obligations of those who would be perceived as lessers, which most household codes would focus on, look, wives, you've got to do this. Children, you've got to do this. Slaves, you've got to do this. And those who were husbands or fathers or, or masters, you don't have any obligations. You're in charge. You make up the rules. You don't have any obligations. But what the Apostle Paul is going to do is he's going to devote more space to the commands toward those who are perceived as those having authority than those who are perceived as the lessers. And so, the obligations and responsibilities were highlighted even as those who are perceived as lesser were given the honor of being addressed first. So, this idea that husbands, the wives are addressed first, but the husbands are giving, given more mail. They're given more commands. And what we want to do is we want to look at the obligation that Paul is laying on the husband. In the ancient world, husbands were just in charge. They had no obligation. They could do whatever they wanted to. But Paul says, no, 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 no. You're not just allowed to do whatever you want to do. You have obligations. He's going to lay them out for them. Look at 525. It says this, husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Very few ancient sources ever talk about husbands loving their wives. Let me say that again. There are very few ancient sources that talk about one of the things that husbands do is that they love their wives. There's very few philosophical treaties on the nature of marriage that talk about a loving marriage. Oftentimes, they're marriages of convenience. They're marriages of pragmatism. They're marriages to accomplish something. Paul says, no, 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 no. Your responsibility, husbands, is to love your wife. And not just, not just to be like, yeah, I like her. No, your ob obligation is to mirror the image of Jesus as he gives himself up for the church. You are to give yourself up for your wife. This is completely anti-cultural in the ancient world. 
And we see, we see the same thing with Jesus, that those, those who come with power, the first among you will be the last among you. This is Paul leaning into Jesus' upside-down kingdom. And he's saying, look, to quote Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Thank you, Spider-Man fans out there. <laughs> Spider-Man didn't come up with that, okay, right? Jesus, Jesus came up with that. Jesus was the one who made that, who popularized that. Jesus was the one who lived that out. Love your wives. Now, we spent some time earlier in the book talking about what love is. We talked about faith, hope, and love. Faith is directed towards God. Hope is directed towards the future. Love is directed to those outside. So you have faith, hope, and love. Faith towards God, hope toward the future, love directed outside of yourself. And negatively, negatively, it, love does not seek its own advantage or its own edification. Positively, it seeks the good, the advantage, the edification of others. The best place that we can find in the New Testament to look at the love of Jesus is Philippians chapter 2. Turn to Philippians chapter 2 really quickly. It's only, um, if you're, uh, it's one book over, so go eat popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's how I remember it, everybody, okay? Uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, when you look at Jesus' example of love, what we see, what we see, look at it in, in, um, in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, ultimate authority, ultimate headship, ultimate authority, even though he was in the very form of God, what, what? He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held onto, something to be desperately held onto. If you're going to love your wife and you're going to be the head, don't hold on to that. What does Jesus do? He empties himself. He takes the form of a servant. Being in nature God, he chooses to self-empty and take the form of a servant. Husbands, love your wives. Take the form of a servant. The idea of love here, love is the shorthand way of saying self-emptying love. The way we think of love is self-emptying or giving up of status for the sake of another. I mean, 525, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself, becoming a human, becoming a servant, dying, not only a death, but dying a death on the cross. This pathway down, waiting for God then to vindicate him. This is the path of discipleship. And of course, this is the path of discipleship, not only for men, but for women as well. But in the, nature, in the relationship of marriage, it is, it is husbands who are to take the lead in taking this posture. Having authority, but not considering authority something to be held onto and exploited, but to empty themselves, taking the form of a servant. This is love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This passage, the Philippians 2 passage, explains what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 5. Empty yourself. Love is self-emptying. The obligation of the husband is particularly self-emptying love. Even though the husband might have the benefit of headship, or authority, that authority should not be exploited for gain, rather like Jesus, self-emptying. All right, so how, does Paul, how is Paul trying to raise the status of women here? One, he addresses them first. He focuses not just on yielding, but mutual submission, mutual yielding. He limits the area of, limp, of yielding, and he makes it clear that husbands have a greater responsibility and obligation to their wives, an obligation of self-emptying love. 
And you might say, look, this still sounds, this kind of still sounds like small potatoes uh, today, and it may not make this entirely palatable to 21st century ears, but it's important to note that in Paul's day and age, he is remarkably swimming against the tide of the culture to raise the respect and dignity due to women and to awaken men's obligations to their wives. Whether or not it sounds good today, we have to at least give credit that he was setting a trajectory, even if it doesn't sound good today. How many things that were said a hundred years ago that sound totally horrible to us today? Probably there are things that we say to each other today that if we go a hundred years in the future, they're going to say, how could those people be so ignorant as to say those things to each other? And we don't want to be, we don't want to be prisoners of our moment, our cultural moment, but we need to understand intent, and Paul is intending to do this. So what I want to do from here on out is I just want to quickly talk about this idea. Then if Paul's trying to raise the status of women, but, but still this question, like, what, how, how should my marriage work? How, how should I understand this? How should I understand this idea of submission and headship and love? How should that work in a marriage? So let's read the rest of the passage, and then I want to I focus on what, how Paul uses the Genesis 2 illusion in Genesis 2 to kind of build this idea of what a marriage looks like in his eyes. 5.28, Ephesians 5.28 says this, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Then 5.31, Therefore, Paul's quoting the Old Testament, quoting Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that this refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right, let me just say something about Ephesians 5.31. I'm doing a, um, at the end of June, I'm doing a, a, a wedding up in Seattle, and I'm going to, the wedding uh, homily is going to be based on Genesis chapter 2, and this story of, uh, of Adam uh, noting that he's alone in this world. He's alone in the garden. He's got all these animals, and he's naming them all, but God says, hey, Adam, it's not good that you're alone. And the story then unfolds that he goes, God runs all the animals in front of him, and he names them all. And as he does that, he's like, none of these, none of these can work. None of these will be my companion. And those of you who own dogs, that's equally true of your dog, okay? I want to keep my, I want to keep my anti-dog persona alive. I'm just kidding. Okay. No, no animal, no animal can provide the kind of companionship. And so Adam goes through this whole thing. I'm not anti-animal. I'm just joking with everybody. Thank you very much. We have a dog, but he's great. He's wonderful. Great dog. But God runs, he runs this little exercise before Adam, and Adam's like, there's no one, there's nothing. And so God puts him to sleep. The imagery in Genesis is that he takes a handful of his side. It's not just his rib, it's this idea that he takes his flesh and bone and he takes a handful of his side and he forms a woman out of Adam. And we'll talk about his response to that in just a minute, but one of the responses is, therefore, once he sees, once he sees the woman, and he'll, we'll talk about his response to that, but afterwards, there's this, there's this interpretive quote Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Where, if you're King James, leave and cleave, right? Leave and cleave. I did a, um, I did a children's ministries internship right out of college out in Scottsdale Bible Church, and they had a young marrieds class. And the name of the young marrieds class was the Cleavers. And it wasn't an allusion to, to uh, leave it to Beaver right? It was that these people, they had left their family of origin. They were cleaving to each other, the cleaver class, okay? And that, that's a great, I think that's a great idea of like what a young marriage group is, is it's learning how to stay together, to cleave, to be attached to one another. 
cleave. In our passage, there are allusions to the husband as Christ does this to the church that he, look at 526, it says that, that, that he might sanctify her. That verb there is, it's the verbal form of make her holy. That Christ is going to sanctify the church. He's going to set her apart. And there's an illusion that, 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 that the husband is to sanctify his wife. It doesn't mean that he, he is saving her. It simply means this, that he is setting her apart. And that both of them, both the husband and wife, they're going to leave their family of origin, they're going to leave their father and mother, and they're going to cleave to each other, and they are going to sanctify each other. And that is that they are going to set them apart in, in, in the vows that we're going to be giving at this, at this wedding, forsaking all others. That there's going to be a, a particular relationship between husband and wife that is set apart. That there's a loyalty to the wife and the husband that is not owed to any other person, including father and mother. Leave the father and mother and cleave. Set that person apart. That is the idea of a marriage. That you would be setting each other apart. It's a special relationship. Verse 27, so she might be holy. A marriage is characterized by setting apart this relationship as special, as exclusive. Set apart from all other relationships, all other allegiances, because the two have become one. Everything that Paul is saying here about this, this you know, no, no man hates himself, hates his own flesh, is because it's one flesh. You love your wife, be, and he says, you love your wife, you love yourself, because you have become one. A couple other things to note. In 529, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And I think when Paul is, when he's quoting that Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, he's bringing back this whole context, this whole story like we had talked about, about, about going through this process of looking around. There's no helper suitable. There's no counterpart suitable. And so God takes a handful of his ribs and his flesh. He forms a woman. He says, okay, now, now, now I'm going to wake him up, and now I'm going to bring you to the woman. He brings the woman to her like the first marriage ceremony of walking the daughter down the aisle. It's the very first marriage ceremony. He walks her down. He presents. And what does Adam do? It's the first time in Scripture that you see a human break out in song. He says, at last, and he starts singing, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He constructs a poem right on the spot because what he sees, he cherishes it. When we break out into song, when we dance, when we, when we create, when we make poems, when we write, we're cherishing. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that, look, love, self-emptying love, nourish, care, cherish. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She is like me, but she's not like me. At last, I think when, when we encounter, whether you're, you're married or not, maybe you hope to be married, maybe you, you're like, look, I'm, I know I'm, I'm going to be single. Jesus is a great example of, look, godliness that, never, that didn't experience marriage. That's not, marriage is not like the next thing. <laughs> it's like, well, you've got, you know, it's like that's how you graduate out of the college classes. You, get, you go to, that's not, spiritual growth does not mean you have to go to the next phase, right? It's not, it's not about that, but this idea that a good marriage, a solid marriage, a marriage that is intended by God is a marriage where people look at each other and they cherish. They cherish. 
They look at each other and they say, at last. And it might have been, it might, look, you, those of you who've been married a long time, and it's awesome, like, this probably doesn't happen every day, probably doesn't happen when you wake up at first in the morning, but there might be times in the day or times in your life or times in, in just the year where you just sit back and you're like, man, I am really thankful for my wife. I'm really thankful for my husband. Man, God brought that person to me at last. And to think back to those original days, those early days, at last. I love that one of the the best wedding songs is at last, right? That's biblical. That's a biblical song. That's beautiful. That's the idea of a marriage when two people would look at each other, forsaking all others, making each other holy, looking at each other and saying, at last, You know, in this passage, it's it's unclear why Paul did not command wives to love their husbands. Maybe that's a bonus. No, no command, no command to love your husband here. Look, that that that's not the point. Like, I suppose there's also no command for the 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 husband to submit. Although in 21, in verse 21, submit to one another. And here's the deal: in this passage, there is mutual submission, and it's this: for for one person is self-yielding love. And for the other person, it's self-emptying love. You try to tell me what the difference is there. One is called to self-yield, voluntary submission, voluntary yielding. And the other is self-emptying love. Now let me say this. Is there ever a time when wives do not have to yield or submit? And the answer is yes. There are times when a woman who follows Jesus would be called not to yield or submit to her husband. When a husband is asking her to do something immoral, not in line with the gospel. Paul in Galatians 2.5, he goes to the Jerusalem church and they say, hey, these people need to get circumcised. And he's like, we will not yield. We will not submit to that. Paul's like, that's not in line with the gospel. I will not submit. When the government wants to make you do something immoral, you would say it's our obligation to say, we will not submit. And wives, if your husband is asking you to do something immoral or there's abuse, you would say, I will not submit. There are times we have to say this is voluntary submission. This is voluntary yielding. There's been a lot of harm that has been inflicted on women and wives using a passage like this to mandate enduring abuse or constant demeaning, a loss of self-identity or self-agency. I would say this, self-yielding, submission is voluntary and is done and is more easily done when a husband is self-emptying rather than demanding submission. Is there ever a time when it's okay for a husband not to give self-emptying love for his wife? The answer is no. There is never a time when a husband does not give self-emptying love for his wife. There's never an excuse for that. There are provisions for for submission. There are no provisions for not giving self-emptying love. Husbands are never off the hook. If you marry... Your responsibility is to nourish, cherish, and give yourself up. Let men be aggressive in their love, service, honoring, cherishing, nourishing their wives, and let wives be discerning in their yielding. But marriage should be characterized by self-yielding love and self-emptying love. That's what Paul is teaching in this passage. Submit to one another. How? Self-yielding love and self-emptying love. That is the command. That is what marriage looks like in this passage. Now, maybe you're here. You're like, Pastor Craig, you should have told my wife to submit to me. If 
on the offhand chance that you're concerned that I have not come down hard enough on the women, particularly your own wife, I would recommend two things. The first is that you should love your wife with a self-emptying love and you will probably find things getting better. The second is you should talk to your wife, listen to what she has to say. If you're demanding submission, something has gone wrong. Let me say this. If you pull out this passage and you show it to your wife and you say, you're supposed to submit, something has previously gone off the rails. Something has already gone wrong. Okay? I want, I want to make this clear, okay? Because this, is a, this passage is hard enough to teach, okay? So I want to make sure that everyone understands that this passage is not a club that you beat women over the head with to make them submit. It's not okay. And we won't have any of it here. And if we see it anywhere else, we would stand up and say, husbands should love their wives with a self-emptying love. And they should not demand submission. Submission is self-yielding love. Maybe you're here and you say, well, Pastor Craig, my husband does not love me the way I want to be loved. I don't want to submit to my husband. I would say, a couple things. Does your husband love Jesus? Is he trying to follow Jesus? Can that be enough? Can that be enough? Can it at least be a start? Can he get credit for that? And then I would ask also, is there anyone that you would submit to? Sometimes, if you don't want to submit to your husband, you don't want to submit to anybody. And we have to imagine that a passage like this is written to a community and a cluster of communities where there are husbands who are misusing their authority over their wives for their own benefit, And there are women who are not submitting to anyone, not even their own husbands. I suppose this is a strangely contemporary text now. It's not 2,000 years old, is it? So Paul says, husbands, give self-emptying love to your wife. Cherish her, nurture her, honor her in front of others. Consider her as more important than yourself. And Paul says, wives, you don't have to yield to every man, but yield to your own husband who is following Christ and loving you. All right, here's the last thing, and then we'll land the plane, and then you won't be marriage counseling with Pastor Craig, okay? So here's the deal. I studied the Bible, um, read the New Testament, original languages, whatever. This is the longest passage on marriage in the Bible. Let me say that again. This is the longest passage on marriage in the Bible. The Bible is otherwise relatively quiet about what an ideal marriage looks like. So I would just say this, anybody who's going to write a book called Marriage God's Way is making a lot of stuff up. They're adding a lot of stuff in. Who does what in a post-agrarian society? Who spends the most time with the kids? Who changes the diapers? Who gets up in the middle of the night? Who should have the highest paying job? Who should pay the bills? Who should cook dinner? Who should do the shopping? Who should plan the vacation? Who should play hardball at the car dealership? Who should drive when you're both in the car? The Bible does not say And in a good marriage, you would simply talk about it. And there is no more biblical or unbiblical way to get 
home today, in your car, than otherwise simply saying, out of self-emptying love or self-yielding love, we can decide on this ourselves. I think there is a time, there, there's a, a certain bit of us that we kind of take our own ideas about what a good marriage looks like or what a cultural marriage looks like, and, it, you know, and we kind of stamp, this is biblical. And it's like, no. I remember when we were in a young couples group, um, and we got, there was a, one of the elders came in and was doing this teaching, like, this is how a marriage should be, and this is how guys think, and this is how women think, and we're like, yeah, that's not exactly how it's working. Like, it doesn't, that doesn't ring true. And there was actually like, well, you guys might not be doing well in your marriage. We're like, no, we're doing fine. And I think that some, what we, this is the longest passage on marriage in the Bible. We got to back down and allow, you think about how many personality types there are. If it's just Myers-Briggs, there's 16 different personality types. If you're an Enneagram fan, there, fan there's nine. But just think about this. If you have two people, 16 different types, 16 different types, nine different types, nine, like how many different possibilities are there in a marriage? There's more than one way to have a marriage. But you cannot have it without self-emptying love and self-yielding love. And you will find that in your marriage, you will pro- whether you are the man or the woman, you will do both of those things. You will self-yield and you will self-empty. It might be harder to do one or the other depending on whether man or woman, and maybe that's what Paul's getting at here, that it's a little harder to do either of those things but you will do both of those things in your marriage. The last thing is this, just because this is about marriage doesn't mean that if we're single, we're off the hook either. The call of discipleship is to grow like Jesus, to love like Jesus does, to self-empty. The path of discipleship is a path of descent and not claiming our rights, but giving them up and waiting for God to vindicate us. It's Philippians 2 every day, self-emptying love, God vindicating And that's what we are called to. The Bible is not quiet on leaving your family of origin and holding on to your spouse, setting them apart. And it's not quiet on having a relationship that's characterized by self-emptying and self-yielding love. The other things, just have a good conversation about. And you can honor God that way.